This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Mark Hazy. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. He's the most famous whistleblower in the world. Julian Assange has been a household name for more than a decade, fighting America's attempts to jail him for leaking classified documents. But after years behind bars, could he soon be set free? Well, his wife thinks so, and we're about to speak with her. Our chat with Stella Assange is coming up in a minute. Also ahead, you're going to hear about a mission to protect the mental health of hospo workers, and later, why a visit to Australia by India's leader is so controversial. First, though. Pack. Julian's life is in the hands of the Australian government, and it's not my place to tell the Australian government how to do it, but it must be done. On Triple J. Yeah, I think it's pretty unlikely you haven't heard the name Julian Assange. Like, even if you're not up to speed with the whole WikiLeaks history, over the past few years, you would have seen him a bit in the news. Maybe you've even been to one of the many rallies around the country calling for him to be released from jail. A lot has happened over the past couple of decades, but Julian Assange's supporters think now is a crucial time, that he might be about to be set free after years in prison. In a minute, we're going to speak to Julian's wife, Stella Assange, but first, our reporter, April McLennan, has a bit of an update to bring you up to speed. Around a 1,000 people have gathered in Sydney today to demand the freedom of Julian Assange. To give you a quick recap, Assange is this Aussie guy who founded WikiLeaks. It's basically a whistleblowing website. And back in 2010, WikiLeaks released hundreds of thousands of classified files, including evidence of some pretty serious war activity involving the US, like torture, kidnapping and assassination. It was the largest security breach of its kind in US military history. The continuous deaths of children, insurgents, allied forces. Search for the word amputation in this material, or amputee, and there are dozens and dozens of references. The US were pissed. They consider Assange to be an enemy of the state and say more than 100 people were put at risk by the leak. The WikiLeaks founder's legal saga started at the end of 2010. Assange spent seven years holed up in Ecuador's embassy in London to avoid extradition to Sweden. The Swedes wanted him for questioning over a sexual assault investigation that was later dropped. But in 2019, he was dragged out of there and jailed for breaking bail conditions. And he's been sitting in prison in London ever since, while he's fighting extradition to the US, where the Trump administration wanted Assange to face 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse. This whole thing is causing tension between Australia and the US, and our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has called on the US government to drop the charges. This needs to be brought to a conclusion. There is nothing to be served by his ongoing incarceration. And while many hoped Albo would push US President Joe Biden to drop the charges against Assange when he visited Australia this month, President Biden had to cancel his trip, so there's still no answer around whether the WikiLeaks founder will be released or not. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. Always handy to be brought up to speed with such a long history, right? And it's hard when there is so much that's happened over the years, you can lose track. Well, Julian Assange's wife, Stella Assange, is in Australia at the moment. She's only here for a few days, but she's already led a huge rally of thousands of people, been to Parliament House in Canberra, met with all kinds of politicians and leaders and addressed the National Press Club. 
And we're very lucky that Stella has made time to speak with us. Stella Assange, welcome to Hack. Thanks for having me. Just firstly, what kind of state is Julian Assange in at the moment, physically, mentally? How's he going? Well, it's very difficult for him because he's in a prison, in a high security prison in London. And he's been there since the 11th of April 2019 when he was arrested. And he's there indefinitely. He's not serving a sentence. He's caged in there indefinitely. Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, has said, look, I've made my position clear to the United States. It's very clear, but there's really only so much I can do. Australia can't interfere with another country's legal proceedings, court processes. What can Australia do? Like, how much impact does Australia's voice have in all of this, do you think? Well, Australia is crucial. Actually, it's a, a crucial ally to the US, probably the most important ally now. And the government can do a lot. It can do everything. It has resources. It has diplomatic avenues that we as a family don't have. And we're confident that the United States administration actually sees this case as a problem and that they also want to find a solution. And so the Australian government is a bridge to finding a solution. Is there something that's changed in your opinion recently? Like, do you feel there's been some kind of a shift where it feels as if there's going to be a real breakthrough soon? Absolutely. Because look, when Julian was first arrested, uh, there was a lot of false information out there that had actually been planted to, to pave the way for his imprisonment, really. But over time, all those falsehoods have fallen away and people who are just observing the situation can see that it's wrong. It's wrong to have a man in prison indefinitely. It's wrong to put him in prison for publishing true information, information that actually revealed the crimes committed by other people, war crimes, killings of civilians by the US military and so on. The passage of time has allowed people to take a distance from the propaganda, basically, and see this for what it is, which is a political persecution. Is there anything that you've heard that makes you think the US might be about to change its mind? We have indications. And look, the US has always seen this case as a controversial controversial case. Each of the administrations, the Obama administration, in fact, considered it was too controversial to prosecute. And that um, he, he said his administration was not willing to do that because it would basically set a precedent for the rest of the press. The Trump administration was willing to do that precisely because it would set a precedent which could then be used against the rest of the press. So within the Biden administration, this case is controversial. The Department of Justice treats it with unease when they've had the opportunity to comment about it. They decline. The indications we are getting are that the US also sees this as a problem and that the Biden administration doesn't want this as its legacy. So I think that the pieces are coming into place for Julian to be finally released. And, you know, this is a political case. Supporters of Julian Assange often say that this process of having him locked up diminishes the moral authority of countries like the US, Australia. What do you mean by that? Well, look, um, historically, uh, the Western countries, Western liberal democracies have upheld the standard of press protection. This case is the biggest, the single biggest 
attack on press freedom globally. And I'll tell you why. Partly because Julian is such a high-profile figure. He's probably the most famous journalist worldwide. The United States has taken this case and, and the premise of the of the case is, is just outlandish because Julian is not a U.S. citizen. He's Australian. He was not even in the United States. He was in the U.K. He was publishing alongside other press the same information. Um, and they've singled him out and said that U.S. laws apply to him. Anyone can, can use the same principle. So you could have, let's say, Turkey um, saying Turkish laws apply to Australian journalists. And if you publish something that Turkey says is a, a secret or something you're not allowed to publish in Turkey and you're an Australian journalist in Australia, uh, then they're going to extradite you and put you in prison in Turkey. It's completely ridiculous. What happens when you have such a high-profile case against a journalist for publishing journalism, for doing journalism, is that it sets a new standard. Uh, it sets a, a new example, a blueprint for how to go after journalists, how to go after people who are inconvenient to powerful actors, and it sets a new normal. We now have bipartisan support in politics uh, in the sense that opposition leader Peter Dutton has also uh, backed up the Prime Minister's calls for, for this to end. How much of a difference do you think that makes, Stella? I think it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference because it sends a very clear message to the United States that this is not a question of a... Uh, you know, of one party, one side of politics, but this is the whole of Australia that sees this as a national issue. Look, but this comes from the Australian people. Politicians, um, they only ever take a public position on something if they think it will get them re-elected. So um, it's thanks to the Australian population that, that we now have unity in politics on this issue. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Julian Assange's wife, Stella Assange, who is in Australia campaigning for more action to have the WikiLeaks founder released from prison. Stella Assange, on top of everything that you're doing to free your husband, you're flying around the world, you're leading protests. I mean, you've got a family. You've got two children with Julian Assange. How exhausting is this? Like, what kind of an impact is it having on you? Well, um... You know, I, I the kids miss me, obviously, uh, and I miss them, and it's hard. And I'm also not able to see Julian while I'm traveling here. Usually I see him once or twice a week, and that keeps us going, you know. Um, we just want this to be over as soon as possible uh, so that we can be together as a family. And so, yes, it's challenging, but ultimately... As long as it furthers the chance of Julian coming home as soon as possible, then it's worth it. What's your worst fear? Well, my worst fear is losing Julian forever, and that's a very real fear, and that's a re very there's a very high risk of that happening if people don't come together and do what needs to be done to get him home. If he's extradited to the United States, that's the end. Um, he will not survive extradition. He's already spent over four years in a high security prison. His health is deteriorating by the day, not just his mental health, but also his physical health. You have to understand this is a, this is a small, uh, single cell, uh, and he's in there on his own day after day, year after year. This is extremely challenging for 
any person and he's very resilient, but he's also getting weaker and weaker by the day. But then at the same time, you know, he he knows there's a lot of support for him. Millions of people, literally millions of people around the world who are doing everything they can. He's receiving awards, recognitions. The film we made, Ithaca, just been shown on terrestrial TV in the UK. So we're we're building a lot of support and awareness and he knows that and that helps him survive and, and fight back. I wonder, do you ever talk to Julian about what you'll do if he's freed? Like where he wants to live, how he wants to live. Do you talk about those things or is it too painful to even go there at this point? We talk about it all the time and I think you you need to have a vision of where you want to be. Often I find myself to sound quite hopeful and I just, I need to kind of nurture that hope because I think you can't give in to despair even when a situation is extremely difficult. So Julian and I talk about, when well, we talk about the past, about our memories together, about funny anecdotes, you know, we do that all the time. We talk about the present, so what's happening with the kids at school or uh, funny things they've said, or and also about the future, about, well, it's so uncertain, but that lets you dream quite a lot. And so um, I asked him when we come to Australia, where do you want to live? You know, he's lived in different places in Australia. He he spent a lot of time in Melbourne. He was a very keen cyclist in Melbourne. He also grew up in Queensland and Byron Bay. And he wants to show me all these places and show the kids and, uh, you know, go back into nature because he hasn't been in nature. He has literally hasn't touched a tree um, for over a decade. He needs to reconnect with nature. Um, and that's how I imagine... It will be when, when he's released. I imagine him walking uh, on the beach and and just feeling the, the breeze on his skin. And these are things that he hasn't had. You talk a lot about hope and it's clear that you provide a lot of support to Julian, but I'm wondering how much support he provides to you. Is Do you, do you find that you're surprised sometimes uh, by his capability to hope and dream? Yeah, I mean, Julian is my number one champion. You know, I've had to become a, a public person uh, advocating for Julian, and that was quite challenging in the beginning. Julian is, you know, he's very supportive, and uh, we support each other. It's not just one way. Stella Assange, nobody can deny that you are an incredibly busy person. Really appreciate you making the time to speak with us. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And we've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, free Assange. She's a real journalist, a national hero. That was from Angus. Another person says, I never liked the fact the leaks went out without any publishing accountability, but time to let the man go. And someone else, whether people agree with Assange's actions or not, he's been confined for years now, while the people alleged to have committed war crimes in the leaks still walk free. That one was from Mo in Melbourne. Hack. If we can make our venues safer spaces and better places for our people, I think it will make the industry a lot more attractive for many years to come. On Triple Jack. You know, if you work in hospo, you know it can be tough. Long hours, customers that can be demanding, drunk, annoying, rude. 
And for a lot of young people, this is your first taste of the workforce. But even though there are hundreds of thousands of people working in hospitality in Australia, there's not a heap of support available. Well, that's what a pair of bar owners from Wollongong in New South Wales reckon. They're setting up a mental health training program for hospo workers. I'm keen to hear if you'd be into this. Like, are you a hospo worker? What kind of impact does it have on you if you have a rough night at work or the insecurity? Let me know. You can message in 0439757555. Well, reporter Justin Hunstale's been finding out a bit more about the Barstool Brothers. Hospitality can be kind of underrated in how hard it can be sometimes. I think it's it's generally a lot of young people coming straight out of out of school or people still studying at university. So I think some of the bigger bigger things are around the hours worked, um, the times of, of day, and I think having to work weekends, you miss out on a lot of those important social events in regards to family and friends and, and building those connections. So um, it can be quite a stressful work environment as well. It's generally quite fast-paced. It's, it's normally not as a, a very thankful job as well. These are just the issues behind the bar. Daniel Chin says that on the other side, alcohol plus customers can make for a tough and even unsafe day at work. Um, it's good to see that it is starting to change, but I think it's definitely time that um, it's taken a hard look at and, and look at making hospitality a lot safer. Daniel works in a burger bar in Wollongong, but he's worked in hospo for ages now. He says across the whole industry, there's a real lack of training and support to help staff deal with those problems either side of the bar. I've seen some some quite ordinary things in regards to how uh, staff are treated by by owners and, and management. So I think it's, it's good to start creating a healthier culture in these workplaces and um, we believe that started through education. So th- this is the issue behind the bar, but you're also dealing with people on the other side of the bar who might have their own mental health issues and a lot of people might come to a bar as, as their escape or for company or those sorts of things. And how, I guess, is the training that you're doing going to tie in with how uh, staff are dealing with customers? Yeah, I think a lot of men in particular um, at this stage, they will flock to a, a bar if they have nowhere else to turn. It's something safe and comfortable that they, they have been to before. So um, we really want to give our staff and, and staff in hospitality venues the tools to spot when uh, when these guys are coming in looking for help, when they're looking for connection. Um, so to have those tools, I think, is really important for, for a lot of young staff coming out that may not know how to talk to people generations above them as well. That's something that 23-year-old Molly can really relate to. Because you're dealing with people going through a lot of emotional, traumatic things and then they're drinking. She's worked in hospitality for five or six years now and says she still finds some conversations really difficult. Um, But there's definitely been days where I'm like, how am I supposed to tell a 60-year-old man he's not supposed to drink anymore because I don't think he's doing well when he's got a lifetime experience above me, you know? And that really should be for the, like a, a therapist, like an experienced person in this field. Whereas you've got me, a 23-year-old. I have no idea how to deal with a man telling me he's just got an ABO out from his wife. Um, like, I don't know how to do that. So that's where Daniel Chin and bar owner Lachlan Stevens come in. A men's mental health support group they started called Barstool Brothers is now expanding into what they hope will become a national mental health training program for hospo staff. How to spot signs and symptoms of poor mental health um, and also how to communicate with people that may be struggling with poor mental health at the bar, um, as well as being able to communicate with other staff and management as well. The new course will begin with a few hundred participants in Wollongong before eventually rolling out nationwide. Lachlan Stevens is also an Afghanistan veteran. 
And for him, advocating for better mental health support is super important. When we hear men expressing issues around their own mental health and and wellness, um, we are, are leaders in the community. We've got to do something about that. And he's hopeful the program will eventually have government funding when it comes time to expand. Anything, I guess, that can take and alleviate pressure off uh, mental health um, uh, services like hospitals and emergency rooms is something that all governments are concerned with. Him and Daniel reckon venues are kind of on the front line of mental health support and actually have a duty to help steer people towards professional help. But staff need support to actually do that. And I think it's really important to start a conversation as to maybe opposed to serving just another beer and, and walking away. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, that's Justin Hunsdale with that story. Really interesting. I've got a big response on the text line. Someone says, I've been a hospital worker for years, still going strong, but still lacking pay and rights. Another person, I work in hospital. While I generally enjoy it, it is a slog and it can also be quite high risk. More support, flexibility, staff is needed. That's from Sean in Geelong. And another person says, this is incredible. As a dude who's been in hospo for my whole life and also who suffers from some pretty severe mental health issues, I've always wanted something like this, but there's just nothing out there. Good on these guys. We've got someone on the line now. Luke from Melbourne's called in. Hey, Luke, thanks for calling up. What's your experience with hospo? I mean, I imagine dealing with drunk people can be pretty tough at times. Hey, Dave. Um, Yeah, so I've been working hospital for like the last four years now um and yeah dealing with drunk people can it can suck sometimes like uh it varies from what place you work at but since i've worked in a brewery and a pub before um you kind of get the full full force of it sometimes and do you reckon that there's just not a lot of support there for younger workers in in particular like just to deal with all the stuff that happens to work like would you really like to take advantage of a program that specifically targets hospital workers yeah, I think it'd be good, um, especially for places to show that to their workers and say, hey, look, this is this is a spot for you to reach out and ask for help here because like a lot of people will start their first shift at like an alcohol job. Um, they're fresh 18 and they kind of get thrown in the deep end with a lot of people who are loud, crazy, a little bit violent sometimes. Like you see it all as a hospital worker. Um, so yeah, a thing like that would be perfect to reach out and like explain your experiences and hopefully seek help. Hey, Luke, uh, so many people on the text line who are really backing you up here. appreciate you calling in. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences. On the text line, someone says, Today I got abused by a customer telling me that I was rude for simply telling her there had been miscommunication as to why she didn't get her coffee. Another person, when I worked in hospital, I was subject to so much sexual harassment and had no support. I think it's absolutely needed. So many women and gender-diverse folk are struggling. That was from Kat in Perth. A lot of messages coming through, a lot of support for that program. Time to move on. Hack. The last time I saw someone on the stage here was Bruce Springsteen and he didn't get the welcome that Prime Minister Modi has got. On Triple J. Yeah, I don't know whether you saw the pictures out of that packed stadium in Sydney this week. A huge turnout. Who was the headliner? Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Tens of thousands of Australia's Indian community packed a stadium to see Narendra Modi on his first visit in a decade. And the Australian government's clearly trying to prove just how important India is to Australia. Big events. They've announced a new centre for Australia-India relations. But not everyone's happy. There have been protests as well. So what are they about? Well, we've got an expert with us now. 
Dr Priya Charko is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Adelaide and she's with us now. Hey, Dr Priya, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, thanks for having me. We had Prime Minister Anthony Albanese get a huge welcome in India recently. Now Australia's pulling out all the stops for Narendra Modi. What does this tell us about the Australia-India relationship? Yeah, so finally the Australia-India relationship actually seems to be getting closer for a long time. It was a bit of a roller coaster. There would be a bit of excitement and then there would be a big lull, nothing would happen. Australia was quite interested in India. India was not so keen. But now it looks like there's mutual interest from both sides. They've been visiting each other. Ministers have been visiting India. Indian ministers have been visiting Australia. And this year we've had both the Prime Ministers visit each other's countries. So it it indicates that there's a lot more seriousness in terms of getting closer. Yeah, I was reading some of your work before and I saw that you wrote that in the past, Australia and India only shared superficial similarities and there was this phrase, cricket, curry, commonwealth. Has that changed a lot? Look, I think it has. It was always really superficial because, of course, history didn't put Australia and India on the same side. Australia was an empire, a sub-imperial power. It was serving the British Empire. India was fighting against it. There was some superficial interests in, in sport and, and food, but not much else. It's But in the last five years, I'd say, maybe in the last three years, in fact, the relationship's become a lot closer. And I think mostly it's because both of them have had deteriorating relationships with China. So it is quite a significant change in the relationship. Now, Narendra Modi is also a controversial figure. Like there have been some protests in Australia during his visit. What are they about? So there's two sets of protests in the Indian diaspora in Australia. One has to do with the Khalistan movement. So the Khalistan movement is a Sikh separatist movement which comes out of Punjab, the state of Punjab. It started in the 80s and was repressed. It flourished in uh, Western countries in particular, places like Canada and the UK, but it's been been dormant for a long time. It sort of sprung back into action a couple of years ago after the farmers' protests in India against uh, the government's agricultural reforms. And one of the reasons why that happened was because the government decided to uh, malign the protesters as Khalistani separatists, and that's given a boost to the Khalistan movement. So there's that's one group who was protesting uh, the Indian government and its treatment of Punjab and its treatment of Sikhs in in India. The other group of protesters are uh, people who are concerned about India's slide toward authoritarianism and majoritarianism. So Narendra Modi is a Hindu nationalist. He privileges the rights and interests of the Hindu majority. And as governments introduce policies that marginalise and and stigmatise religious minorities. So this group of of activists, they call themselves We the Diaspora, they've organised a screening of a documentary, a BBC documentary, which is very critical of Modi, in Parliament House, and that's being supported by the Greens. So two different 
protests are going on uh, in relation to Modi's visit, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. The other interesting thing about Narendra Modi is that he has an approval rating of like more than 75%, something like 78%. Analysts say he's by far the world's most popular leader. I'm wondering, is he viewed a lot differently in India than by the diaspora, like in Australia? Oh, look, I, I don't think so. I think Narendra Modi has um, an ability to distance himself from controversy. He's managed to stoke, you know, pride in a lot of people and that's what people support him for, both in the diaspora and, and in India. So people tend to blame the, the violence and the conflict that's happening on people around him, his party, uh, some of the activists associated with his movement, and they don't blame him. So he ends up being a lot more popular than his party, and he's a very good politician. That's how he's able to do that. And, I mean, the Indian uh, diaspora here in Australia, it's a big community, right? Yeah, it's about, I think, 700,000 people, and it's... Uh, I think, due to grow to more than a million in a few years. And just quickly, uh, Dr Priya, because we are running out of time, but do you expect that this relationship between Australia and India is going to get a lot closer in the years ahead? Like, how do you see it playing out? It looks that way. It looks like uh, both India and Australia have an appetite for trying to at least uh, improve their economic relationship. They've both got problems with China, which aren't going away anytime soon. So it looks like the relationship will be getting closer in the next, in the next few years. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And we appreciate your insight into it all. Dr Priya Chako from the University of Adelaide, thank you very much for joining us on Hack and for filling us in. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.